Welcome to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This podcast delivers insights on medical device packaging from regulatory affairs, process management, as well as discussions on the latest in sterile device packaging technologies. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, speaks with global experts to bring the most relevant information to our esteemed listeners. As sterile packaging compliance becomes increasingly more challenging, it is vital to avoid information gaps that could risk your medical device packaging program. Avoid package failure risks and build your skill set from your colleagues' experience and from insights from sterile device packaging subject matter experts. You're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, Spot Radio. Hello, everyone. It's me again, Charlie Webb, and I'll be your host as usual. As we chat about all things that orbit around medical devices, kind of the name of the game here on my show is the packaging of medical devices, but we push beyond that. We talk about the innovation of new med tech. And today we're going to kind of continue the conversation that Peter Van Gool and I started a few weeks ago, uh, continuing the discussion of innovation, not just for the devices, but also for the packaging itself. So to have the discussion, I brought in an amazing guest today. His name's Pat Cothy. Let me tell you a little bit about Pat before we get going here. Patrick Cothy is a medical device veteran. He spent his entire career in the medical device industry and is currently the CEO of EM Device Labs, an early stage company that provides breakthrough products for the treating of abscesses. During his career, he and his team have successfully launched over 50 implantable and external hardware and software devices. Now, you may know Pat, he's also the host of Mastering Medical Device podcast. This podcast is outstanding. It's on my short list of must-listen-to podcasts. He guides his listeners through the most important issues that are specific to our industry. And I got Pat on the phone. Now, this is going to be a two-part episode. We have so much to talk about. We're going to pick up on uh, our discussion that we had before, a little bit earlier with uh, Peter Van Gool, as we talk about the development of medical devices, what the innovation pathway looks like, and talk a little bit about the packaging piece of that as well. Hey, Pat, thanks for joining me today. Great to have you with me. Oh, Charlie, so glad to be here with you and your audience today. Well, you and I are veterans. We were just uh, talking a moment ago. You're 40 plus years in the industry. Wow. That's a very long time. It's a great industry. And <laughs> yes, it's been good to me and it's a great place to be. I agree. I've, I've just, I've enjoyed this space. I've been on several corners of medical device development on the marketing side. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you see some of the technologists, I was on a, a scientific review board for one of the uh, microsurgical device companies that I worked for. And it was interesting. There were physician contributors on the scientific review board. But surprisingly, a lot of the tech came from sales and marketing guys, which I always thought was interesting. My background's in management. In fact, so much so on these boards that I really wanted to be an innovator. So it's interesting to see that it's not always sort of that clinician-born stuff that we're getting in our industry. A lot of times it comes left or right of that clinical focus. Well, it's interesting, Charlie, because you may think it's coming from sales and marketing, but it really isn't. It's really coming from the clinicians. It's just channeled through sales and marketing. When many people think about marketing, they think about you know pretty brochures and and doing things you know to sell product. There's two main parts of marketing. One is upstream and the other is downstream. And the upstream marketing people, what they're trying to do is they're trying to elicit the needs of the customers and develop products around those needs. So good upstream marketing people are constantly with the customers asking them 
where there are gaps and where there are needs. So even though it may be channeled through the marketing people, that's not really where the ideas come from. The ideas come from the clinicians. Yeah, I mean, the um, the voice of the customer, we just had a uh, discussion with my last guest, Peter Van Gool, talking about the voice of the customer. And usually that's on that sort of distal delivery tip of any medical device that's being distributed through all of the uh, hospital channels. But I think, you know, sometimes maybe the sales and marketing people don't really get some of the respect that maybe they deserve. Now, my experience is a little different where I'm seeing a lot of these sort of tech-oriented salespeople and marketing groups that are actually pulling in that voice of the customer and then adding in what they believe to be a value of that medical device or that packaging system way before it even goes back up to a clinical review of, you know, is this valuable to the patient? I've always felt sort of a soft spot for, I mean, I remember my early days 30 plus years ago, sitting in the doctor's office with a bag full of microsurgical instruments and what a difference that, that I felt that I made to that device over time, but it always had the doctor's stamp on it. So I think for a lot of guys that are, that are out there on the front line, fighting the fight, getting the voice of the customer, seeing how the surgical devices is used. I mean, we used to do a uh, pig's eye study when we had a cataract scalpel. So we would actually have to do these wet labs, these clinical training. A lot of us became very good at that surgical procedure. And so not only could we say, here's the voice of the customer, but even as another user of the device, a lot of valuable insight came from that data point. Well, you're absolutely right, Charlie. And I spent 10 years in the heartfelt industry, and we also use wet labs to train clinicians. So heart valves are pretty technical Plantable device, we would have pig hearts and we would have implantation technique guides that we would go through, but it's really hands-on training. And during that hands-on training, you've got the opportunity to stand elbow to elbow with a clinician and really talk through the real details, the fine details that really separate different products. So during those wet lab sessions or during those times when you're really embedded with that clinician, you're able to get into a deeper conversation. Mm. I think that those are really good uh, opportunities for salespeople, marketing people to learn more about your own product, how it's actually used, how it's actually thought about, Mm -hmm. and then different gaps that you can start to fill as well. So good marketing people really have the ability to kind of sift through a lot of information and kind of categorize things into kind of what exists and what opportunities there are. So it kind of comes from that interaction and knowing your product and knowing the application of that product, but really it's kind of picking up some of these details that you gain from clinicians as you're having some of these deeper conversations. Mm -hmm. Entered into our lexicon over the last 10 years is the term and really more of the the meaning of the uh, the term silo. A lot of, now back in my day, there was very much a defined hierarchy of who was to sort of have that input. You know, these days things are very different. They sort of democratize who is involved in development of devices, particularly medical devices. So it's more gaining that street level data from the person on the street as well as pulling in the clinician and all the other people that have to deal with them. A lot of times when we're talking about a medical device, we forget one of the most important components, and that's reimbursement. If a device is amazingly efficacious and does a great job, 
but there is um, a like product that can effectively do it almost as well, we lose in the numbers game. So we have to bring in so many departments when we're in the development. You know, you've been a president of companies. You've had to look at these ledger sheets and you've had to um, fight against all of the forces against competitors and the market itself. So as we move into these, these more sort of democratized development groups, are you feeling that you're in unfamiliar water based on us having these early starts? Not really, Charlie. I mean, when you say, you know, the silo things, there's 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, today, you still have places that are siloed. And if you have a siloed environment, what you really mean is I don't trust the other person. I'm more important than the other person. Mm -hmm. My function is more important than the other functions. And if you have that, you don't have a real good company. So even back in the day, if you had that siloed environment, you had to break that. The old cliche of, you know, sales always fighting with marketing and, and marketing always fighting with R&D. Yeah, there is a truth to that. But everywhere that I've been, we've tried to break those silos down because mm-hmm. if you have that, you are not fighting the enemy. You're fighting yourself. Mm-hmm. The enemy is your competition, it's status quo, you have to come together in order to bring a new technology out. And if you are siloed there, it is just an impediment. You're just fighting yourself. It's not something that's new. It's something that has gotten more press as years go on, but it's really not not anything that's new. You just mm-hmm. have to work together as a team. Otherwise, you're just going to be taking more time, more energy, and you're not going to be hitting the goal. Somebody told me once we were, we were talking, it's very sort of geek chic right now to have this sort of bongo plane, you know, fun group of everybody's the same and stuff. But someone told me once that, you know, all, all of these things were great at the corporate level. when we talked about, Hey, we're a team. We're all together. Engineering loves marketing and marketing loves engineering. But then everybody goes out to lunch and eats a salad together and, and their discussion is very different. Like, can you believe Whatever, you know, I mean, so sometimes I think in the corporate side, we have a belief that we're engendering a culture of cooperation, but at the, uh, the sort of delivery end of that may tell a different story, but you're, you're right. I mean, if good companies bring people together and they do it in their own unique way, there's so many approaches on how to team build that that's a whole nother podcast, but certainly that's, that's important. But now, Charlie, I'd, I'd like to bring up, you know, kind of a, a couple of practical ways of getting around that because you're right. I mean, you can talk the talk, but are you walking the walk? So top management, hey, we're a team, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's cliches, cliche city. Mm. But when you get down into practical things. So when I was in sales 25 years ago, we had a problem bringing product to market. It was always engineering driven, reorganize the company. I moved over into marketing. And what we did at that point is let's build a new project management system and let's have it co-led by marketing and R&D. Not one or the other, but co-led. And I did that in another company as well, in putting in a project management system that's co-led. You've got a business person, you've got a technical person that's doing that. And then your goals are completely in alignment. Once you get that and your goals are completely in alignment, 
it becomes a different ball game. Mm-hmm. It becomes more of a us versus versus a us versus them. And even though there, there's always going to be friction points, yeah, you know, there's always going to be R and D wants to have a pathway, a defined pathway to to go through and just execute on that pathway. Marketing is going to be a little bit more open to changes as they're learning more. So marketing learns something more and they say, okay, we need to change this requirement for the product because this is new learning. R&D goes, oh, wait a second, here we go again. So that is, it's kind of a common thing. But when your goals are higher level that we need to hit something that hits the mark for the customer, and then you feed those changes in through that system, well, now you're all in alignment again. Even though you have these natural tendencies to go one way versus the other, if you're on the same team, sub-teams, it makes it a little bit better. And the other thing it really takes, Charlie, it takes personal accountability. If you're hearing from your leaders in the marketing department or the R&D department that are saying something condescending to their counterparts, that's a big problem. You cannot have offhand comments coming from your leadership because that is an open invitation to people that are in line, down the line to do the same thing. It starts with leadership, but it has to be leadership at every level that you have alignment with their counterparts and has to feed down the organization that way. Yeah. A lot of that, the headwater is higher right is always where we talk about base plating any of these organizations by getting the right people that they really do have a sense of teamwork. It's not just a bullet point on their resume that they actually have worked in a team environment, then we're able to function. And as you mentioned, you know, buy-in is an important part. I love what you said about having both departments involved on the leadership role because so now they become partners to guide those underneath them, if you might say, and that becomes uh, a good functioning way to manage people because now you have two sort of bosses that have the same belief. And looking back in my early years in college, uh, the University of Redlands in leadership where we talked a a great deal about buy-in from employees. And even in the case, this is something that we're talking about a lot now in medical device packaging is we have to have the buy-in from the users. In our case, we're doing clinical um, packaging opening panels with uh, the American Academy of Operating Room Nurses, for instance, nurses that are opening our pouches and we're getting their feedback. Once they tell us, hey, this is what we want, now they're a co-contributor of that technology. And of course, they're going to buy into the process. And I think that's an important part of this piece. So, you know, as we move ahead in new technologies, you know, we're, we're moving in, in so many new directions, exciting directions. I mean, I was reading this morning about how medical, the sort of medical headwater is now using blockchain to be able to manage privacy and patient records and so forth. I mean, we're leveraging a lot of these technologies that have been principally used in the consumer-based product lines. So let's talk a little bit about development now. Any development mindset that we need to sort of bend our thinking a little bit as we move into this exciting new world of wearables and all of the cool stuff that's coming into our tech? I'm not an expert on the wearable side and the IT side. Most of my products have been products that are devices that are that don't have an IT uh, component to it. But specific on the device side, the trends that continue to 
evolve are this voice of the customer. That is something that I think has really changed over the past you know, decades. It's getting more involvement early on for the total product and the total customer. It's not just I'm designing a product for a surgeon or a cardiologist or an internal medicine person. It's designing a product that's going to be utilized by multiple customers. And what I mean by multiple customers, it's not just the physician. It's who is ordering the product, Mm -hmm. who's stocking the product, who's opening the product, who's responsible for getting uh, disposing of the product. All of these things are important when you're talking about embedding a technology into a healthcare facility. So I think that the, that is what I've seen more and more of, and I think we'll continue to see is how do you how do you define your product, not just what the what the doctor is using, but the whole scope of the product from the time that it's ordered to the time that it is disposed of. All of those things are important. All of those customers are important. And as we're you know, getting further evolved as companies, we're starting to understand that better. You're so right. You really nailed it. I think, you know, a lot of times we're sort of surgeon focused or patient focused, but, you know, if the, uh, we've seen this before on surgical knives where the surgeon loved the device, but it had a, a, an issue with the, the patient side or vice versa. So it has to, and even Peter Van Gul and I even talk about the value of the aesthetics of the device. It should look nice. Everybody's talking currently about sustainability. It's a piece that we have to talk about when we have the cradle to grave discussion. And as I mentioned before, reimbursement of the device. If the device can't be reimbursed or paid for, you're dead in the water. So I think you're absolutely right. And that's when these challenges become, I think, difficult for particularly medical device startups. They don't have as much resources as the big guys do. And they're trying to gather the data that will lead them to the best possible product. But everything from, you know, getting your competitors data or understanding the market, surveys become very expensive. And so a lot of them are having to kind of MacGyver together some of these reports and data collection to be able to understand what is. I mean, in physicians, surgeons particularly are extremely busy. It's hard to get their voice on your particular device. We may have understood the clinical application and how it helps through earlier panels. But as we roll out, how do you kind of address and face these challenges of collecting the data if you're off the block startup, for instance? Charlie, it's, it's really an interesting point because it's not only the off the block startup, but it's the large company that has differing priorities. So it really is, how are you going to dedicate enough time, enough resource, enough emphasis into this early phase to get that voice of the customer. Because if you're a product manager and you're you're managing multiple products and you've got a new one on the way, even though you're in a large company, you may not have the time to devote to doing a good job there because you've got a lot of other priorities that are going on. In addition to all of the company priorities and being part of a big company and all the all the meetings that you go to, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> if you're a startup, you're dedicated to one product and that is your life. So sometimes it's actually the opposite way where the startup has a more resource to devote to an individual product and understanding that product than the large company does. <laughs> So you really have to look at, this is the project, how much 
time, how much resource am I going to be able to spend in order to get the data that I need to come back? And yes, if it's hard dollars and you're a startup, yeah, that's a challenge. But the thing about startups is people are very open to new ways of doing things. (laughs) And as you said, MacGyvering things and big borrowing and stealing to be able to get the data that they need. So I think that that's kind of a generalization when we say, you know, large companies have more resources, small companies, that's all they do. The startup, that's their life. The problem that I see is people want to develop the product before they understand the problem Mm -hmm. and before they truly understand. Because if you are developing that product, you're going to search for evidence to support the development of your product as opposed to you're out there looking for a solution. Mm -hmm. And then at the tail end, you are, you're developing your product. So it's really kind of a mindset, uh, mindset thing. And some of the issues come in when you've got an engineer that's developing the product first, or you've got a physician who wants to develop the product first. This is how I see it versus getting that customer feedback. So a lot of times it's a matter of you've got to kind of pause and say, hey, you know, yeah, okay, we we understand that we've got an idea for a product, but we need to pause here. We need to go back and validate all of the assumptions that that we're making on this product. So I think that that's really the main thing. And you know, kind of going back to your resource issue, yeah, startups have problems. Problems is cash and the mm. problem is time. Right. But unless you go back and say, we need to understand the problem better before we design the solution, you're risking it's going to be a lot more expensive because you're going to miss the mark on the initial product development. I think there's also a balance when... You know, we definitely want to get voice of the customer. What is the market asking for? What is the shortcoming in in our case now when we're looking at trying to manage costs? I mean, healthcare has a lot more challenges that we both know regarding developing a product opposed to a consumer product. So it's hard to sell the sizzle. We have to sell the steak and that makes it a very different sales proposition. So sometimes when we're we're bringing in that voice of the customer. I think a lot of companies don't know how to ask. And we, I talked about this several times on this podcast. They have a difficult time asking the right question to the right data set, the right group of people, and they end up creating a device that has no home. And like I mentioned before on this podcast as well, I've talked about how sometimes it does take a bold innovator to say, this is what I believe the market really needs. I give the example of Apple Watch. I mean, we who knew that we needed to gather all of this data, oxygen saturation and our an EKG and our sleep metrics on a wearable. A lot of us really probably never asked for that. If we were to query the voice of the customer, maybe none of us would have imagined that. So sometimes I think innovation is a tricky thing. You want to get the voice of the customer to pull you in, but you also sometimes have to have that bold push from an innovator with a vision that says, I see beyond where the market lies at the moment, and that's where magical things happen. As I say before, there's a catalog of incredible consumer devices and medical devices where nobody on that user end probably could imagine 
It came from an innovator that had a vision of how this process could go better. So I think there's a little bit of a balance. We got to pull and we got to push in order to get innovation into the marketplace that makes sense and pushes the needle forward on better surgical procedures, for instance. Well, Charlie, you're right there. And it's if you just are asking the customers what you can do better or where the gaps are, they're going to bring you iterative ideas and make this a little bit faster, make this a little bit slower, make this mm-hmm. different sizes. So it's going to be an iterative discussion. Yeah. But the true marketer, when they're going in, they're looking at what are the needs, what are the problems, what are the pain points? And there may be a solution that nobody has ever heard of before that you know that you can put in there and that's the wow factor of your product. But nobody would know that that would be the wow factor, just like, you know, EKG in, in a watch. Who, who would think that that would, you know, that, that would really sell anything? Mm-hmm. Because nobody could imagine that it could be done. So if you can put a couple of these wow factors into your product, but they have to be the right ones, you have to understand that it would be important for that person. That becomes kind of the the art of of marketing and product design and and product development is that art to be able to say this is out there. It doesn't exist. It is not in the customer's mind right now, but it's something that could really resonate with them. That's the art of product development Mm -hmm. and marketing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we have to sometimes get out of the way for the big innovators. And and you're right. I mean, in our industry, we talk about friction points, all of the stopping points. I'm on one of the Kilmer groups right now where we're looking at ways to speed up medical devices to the point of care. And gosh, that's a, and this is one of the challenges that I'm having with this group is that there's so many ways we can do it. And are they too incremental? Is it a collection of small changes that makes a difference? Is it the big wow factor that makes a difference? You know, I get, maybe it's a combination of both, but we have to look at those and, and sort of assess their value. But I'm a dreamer, and so I, I love to see the, the crazy uh, Elon Musk types that are bringing in stuff we never would have thought about. Some of this stuff goes to the wayside, but I think healthcare sometimes can be a little bit too conservative when it comes to innovation. And again, I know we're not, it's hard to sell sexy in our industry. But sometimes, you know, I mean, you can see it now with a lot of devices. I've said it before, the bedside monitors and so forth are curvaceous. They're pretty. Their lights are dimmed at a nice level. And they look like something that you would sell at Best Buy. So they don't have to be ugly boxes. I'm in the packaging machine business. And, you know, it's easy to just throw on a lot of Granger parts on a metal box and call it a day. But I believe, you know, that UX, the user experience part of any device has value and it has, you can't sell into a marketplace, even if it's this sterile black and white world of a surgical theater, unless you understand that everybody in that room, including the physician and even the patient are all being flooded with commercials on what pretty devices are from things that have nothing to do with medical devices. So you become, you look alien, unusual, dated, if you don't follow on that, that visual value. So even pretty counts when we're talking about medical devices, at least that's how I feel. What about you? Well, it really depends, Charlie, because it depends on who's seeing the pretty and where they stand on the buying side of things and where they stand on the cost side of things. Let's say it's going to cost you a million dollars to make 
the box look pretty, but as soon as it hits the, hits the door, somebody opens a box and, and puts it in into a shelf. Was, was that a good million dollars? Yeah, mm. probably not. But if that box is coming down into people that are influencing decisions, making decisions, creating the, the image of your company, that million dollars may be very well spent. Mm-hmm. So you really have to understand where you're spending the dollars, what you're spending them on, and the value created by each one of those elements, because each one of those elements comes, comes with a cost. You really need to understand who's getting the benefit and what size benefit and how does that lead into adoption, sales, image creation, all of those things that are valuable to your company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in in packaging, you know, we we probably look at this from the top down with a sort of 80-20 split. We want 80%, you know, value to the process or the product or its usability with 20% left a little meat on the bone to throw some some styling in there. And that when you can do that and uh, you've structured your company in such a way that you can make that happen, then that's great. I talked on my last podcast rather about um, this uh, nostalgic term that is developed in in product development, where we want things that are new. Uh, we demand them. In fact, you're old fashioned if you're not engendering something that feels new and now. But at the same time, it has to have the connective tissue of things that we're used to. So nostalgic to the sense that it it's something that we're comfortable with. It's we're not leaving the Earth's gravitational pull too far. It's familiar in our hands. And then we can add a little bit of the tech on top. I think that's probably very much true in healthcare. On medical devices, I would say, you know, we're we're pretty much in that 80-20 thing again, you know, where we can weep in some of these new, almost avant-garde features onto a medical device packaging closure system, but we better anchor it with what we're used to. And so that's that's the way we're seeing it, at least from the packaging side, at least in my point of view. Yeah, when you think about software, so Windows goes from one version to the next. And if, if there's too big of a gap between those, it's really confusing to everybody. Yeah, That's kind of the issue. And same thing with medical device. If you're going from one particular design that does, does one thing and then something similar, it's an easy transition. If you make the device look completely different and it still has an incremental effect on it, wait a second, what happened? Now I'm looking at it and there's a barrier that you just put in front of me and to go from you know, the first product to the second product becomes much bigger. So having, as you said, some connective tissue there to say this is an evolution to it, it's a good thing on some products. If you're iterating on a product, if you're introducing a new product, it just has to be easier to adopt because simple training means simple sales. Complex training means complex and longer sales. Mm-hmm. The design of the product and making it look similar is a good thing in many instances. Radical change becomes harder to implement. Mm-hmm. Well, Pat, I think we're at a good stopping point here. We're running a little bit short on time, and I certainly don't want to cut off this conversation. So listeners, I'm going to ask you to please join us on the next episode of Spot Radio, where part two will start here and we'll continue to have the conversation. So everyone, Thank you so much for joining me today. Pat, thanks for being with me today. And I can't wait for us to continue talking about all of these important topics. You're listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This is Charlie Webb, and we're looking forward to having you back on the next one. 
This podcast is made possible by Vanderstahl Scientific. Executive producer, Lisa Wasberg. Director of media service, Hector Garcia. Audio engineering and editing by Joel and our friends at East Coast Studios. And this is Jonathan Lockwood saying thanks for your support, medical device manufacturers. See you next time on Spot Radio. Spot Radio.